our scripture reading for today is Romans 14, 20 to 23. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Thank you, Liza. Y'all may be seated. Thanks, Manny, as well, for leading us today. Uh, And if you haven't already, please open up, as Liza read from Romans chapter 14, verses 20 through 23 will be our primary text. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we are concluding a 14th chapter today, so I really feel like everybody just deserves an attaboy or an attagirl like for finishing another chapter of Romans. Um, Romans, if you remember, uh, is a letter that Paul wrote uh, back in the first century to a collection of churches, collection of Christians in first century Rome who were really learning to do life together in a city not unlike ours, full of complexity and diversity, uh, learning to do uh, life in, in, the, in the same way that we are, of trying to face critical, important, not only social issues, but also spiritual ones with different backgrounds, different perspectives. And so this led to a lot of division. And so likely what would have happened, one of the reasons we go slowly through Romans is because likely what would have happened when they got this letter from Phoebe as she delivered it, um, they would have read it from beginning to end in one sitting, and then they would have come back together the next week and started to just slowly kind of parse through as they were customary, it was the custom of doing with a new letter uh, like this. And so in many respects, we get to sort of enjoy what, what we, to the best of our knowledge, enjoy what they participated in, is going back through slowly the Word of God, but easily when you go through a letter like this, a correspondence like this through time, a couple thousand years later, um, it's easy to forget that big picture. Um, and even in this chapter, we have to remember what Paul has been talking about. He's been really focusing heavy in this chapter on relationships and learning to be people who are unified even amidst our freedoms and our differences. So there is this liberty, there's this autonomy that we have because of the Holy Spirit, because of the image of God that each of us has been given. And yet we're also supposed to seek unity together, and that's going to lead to life looking a little bit differently. But the division wasn't his main thing. His flow of thought is flowing out of a verse back in chapter 13 where he simply said, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And specifically what Paul is saying then in this part of Romans chapter 14 is that if you love each other, you won't disagree or you won't judge each other when you disagree. If you love each other, you won't look down on one another because you land in different places on secondary issues, which in the 21st century, we find this just as a miraculous thing to consider as Paul's readers did back in the first century. Not judge each other? What's that like? What's that like to not like, try to subtly punk each other and act like we see something better than someone else, right? But this is what Paul is calling us to. And in fact, he mentions three things within this portion of Scripture that likely divided the church and surprisingly, perhaps not surprisingly, still kind of divide us, right? He talked about 
not eating meat, talked about not drinking wine, and celebrating certain festivals is more important than others. People within Rome then disagreed about that. They disagreed. Some were like, no, you can't eat meat. Others are like, have you tasted it? You really should. It's God's grace to the world, right? And others are like, I really enjoy wine. And they say, get behind me, Satan. That is evil, right? And others say, these days are really important. They're like, every day is the same. And so yet all of these people are likely serving on the elder team together. They're in the deacon team together. They're in group together. They're in life together. Maybe they're even living in the same house together. And they're all learning to get along. They're learning to love each other in the midst of their freedom and differences. And so what we realize here in these distinctions is that what Paul's main charter is, is that when we face all these differences, we should resist the urge to start new communities that surround our preferences like starting new churches or denominations, something we've really gotten good at in the past few hundred years of Christian history, right? If we disagree on a secondary issue, we'll start an entire new denomination and say this is really important, and we separate. And in many respects, much of denominationalism in the United States has been a rejection of Romans chapter 14, has been a complete overlook of that. And so in many respects, the way that we exist Right, and just by the way, just because we're non-denominational doesn't mean like we're above that, so look at us, everybody should be, that's, it's not it at all. We're in the midst of that complexity ourselves, and it doesn't mean that we're evil for having denominations. It means it's something we got to really consider. What is it about these divisions that perhaps the scriptures are calling us to something different, right? And Paul, in the midst of that, is essentially calling us to the thing that we looked at last week, to pursue peace. What's it look like to pursue peace with one another in the middle of all of these things? What does it look like to love each other? Now, as we arrive to the end of the 14th, uh, Paul sort of collects all of these thoughts, if you will, holds them uh, in tension, and then delivers this brilliant yet challenging moral principle. If you look at that last portion of the passage that was read in the last verse in Romans 14, it says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, if you want to enjoy all of these freedoms we've just talked about, like food and drink and holidays, you should do that out of faith. And if you don't believe that you should enjoy those things, that uh, abstaining should be because of faith. It shouldn't be out of legalism. It shouldn't be out of fear. Otherwise, either way, we could be sinning. So Paul is saying the point is not which side of the conversation do you land on. He's saying, tell me about your heart. So something that Jesus constantly did. The Sermon on the Mount, which we'll look at this summer, constantly what Jesus was doing was reframing a law around the heart constantly saying it's not really about whether you abide by this law. In fact, to not break that law, you could be sinning just as much as if you break that law if your heart is filled with pride and arrogance and fear and resentment. See, to do anything other than allowing all of our uh, actions to be informed by faith, what Paul is saying, that's sin. That's missing the mark as what Scripture, how Scripture defines sin. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about why everything is about faith. I want to talk about what Paul means by this particular principle. And so I want to pull at that idea, if you will, more than the rest, because much of the rest of the passage is really summarizing where we've come from. Um, Paul's really good at that, by the way. Like a good preacher, he says something about 10 times, and then you're like, all right, we get it. Let's move on, right? And so he develops this new thought now about faith. Um, But we need to take time with something like this, which might be surprising to some of us, because faith is one of those words that gets thrown around quite a bit. So much so, so familiar in some respects with the word faith that we, it's lost all meaning, right? You know, like the word that you can't remember how to spell when it lo- you just say it over and over again. I think Ted Lasso had an entire episode on just saying a word over and over again and just loses all meaning. Um, and sometimes that happens with faith. We can use that word so much 
that we don't actually really consider what, is, what does that mean? What's that look like to be a people of faith? What does it look like that everything must proceed from faith? Um, and so I think that's what we ought to center ourselves uh, and think about a little bit more today, something that we don't just uh, make sure we do in a moment, but something that we learn to cultivate in terms of our character and our habits. Uh, and so here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the nature of faith, the obstacles of faith, and then we'll look at the character of faith. So we'll define it, we'll talk about what sort of oppositions we face as a result of it, and then we'll look at what does a community look like that really is about faith, and not about all these other things that Paul has been talking about, like division and judgment uh, and anger. So we'll look at the nature, the obstacles, and then the character of faith. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we uh, do need your help. We need your help uh, if we're to make uh, any sense of, I mean, a 2,000-year-old letter that uh, is speaking about the power and mercy and love of Jesus, the resurrected Lord, um, in now trying to apply this, live this out, 21st century city like Chicago, uh, men and women who have our own questions, our own pain, our own hurts, our own distaste for religion, our own desire to see the world changed. Um, and also we just wanna pay our bills, we wanna take care of our kids, we wanna do a good job at work, and so, I'm so grateful that in the, uh, the big things and the small things of life, you meet us in them um, with our questions and with some things that we feel like are pretty settled in our hearts and mind. You meet us in those places that you're a God who meets us in our doubt and in our certainties. Um, we thank you. And so we ask for your help. Uh, we ask for your help that as your word is spoken over us, um, help me, help me to be clear and responsible with your word. And yet also, Father, as we all together as a community here, you speak to us. Would we learn to not just say, that sounded nice, that that was a good thought, or I disagree with that, but what's this really look like? What's it look like to trust the Lord and take him at his word in the things of everyday life? Um, And so we do need your help to do that well. Uh, So we pray that your Holy Spirit would shine brightly through the scriptures so that we would know the person, the work, the goodness, and the power, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when we think about faith, likely a lot of things uh, come to mind. Faith is often a stand-in for the word religion uh, in general. So we may say that there are many different faiths throughout the world or around the world. That is, there's many different ways of seeing or believing or understanding ourselves, the nature of the divine or of uh, life or reality in general. But when the scriptures speak about faith, when from Genesis to Revelation, when this idea of faith comes up, it's, it's less about an overarching system of believing or a framework or a, or a religious institution. And it's much more about this idea of what actually connects us with God. What is the thing that connects us with God? And the scriptures say faith. And scriptures, the Bible speaks about faith in predominantly two different kinds of ways. The first is saving faith, and the other we'll simply call living faith. It's gone by a number of different names, but I think that helps to sort of categorize it. So there's saving faith and there's living faith. Paul actually introduces his readers to both of these aspects of faith back in his introduction. You know, like about 14 years ago when we were in Romans chapter 1, he said this in verses 16 and 17. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith, And so he holds both of those ideas of faith and tension in perhaps one of the most famous set of verses anywhere in Romans. It says that salvation is to everyone who believes. That's saving faith. But then he says that the righteous shall live by faith. 
That's living faith. And in perhaps one of the most beautiful summaries of living, or rather of saving faith, Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What exactly is Paul saying about saving faith here? Well, it may may be more helpful to say what he's not saying, because that's the way he sort of speaks, isn't it? That he's saying that faith is to be understood as the thing that is the opposite of you earning it, that it's not a result of our works, that is salvation is not a matter of what we have done, but salvation is a manner, a way in which we receive, that is by faith, what the Lord has done on our behalf for you, for your good, for your joy, for your healing. And the Greek word, which Romans and much of the New Testament was written in, in Ephesus and in Rome, in fact, is this word pistis. And it's this assurance or confidence, particularly in what the Lord has done. And throughout Romans, pistis or faith is the thing that connects sinful human beings with God and his righteousness. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's saving faith. He's saying that this act of faith, believing and receiving who Jesus is and what the Lord has done, connects us ultimately with God. Historically, this idea was sharpened by a group of theologians who essentially broke free from the Catholic Church called the Reformers back in the Protestant Reformation, about 16th century. And what they did was they summarized these things called the five solas. And it essentially was this five-part explanation of what saving faith actually is, which, believe it or not, shapes our thinking even to this day. They said that Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That, in a nutshell, is what saving faith actually is. However, I think as we read Romans 14, we realize that Paul is using that word a little bit differently, and that introduces us to the second usage, this uh, living faith. Look at Romans 14, verse 20 again, printed there in your worship uh, books, but also Romans 14 in any Bible, I guess. (laughs) Romans 14, verse 20 through 22. It says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So Paul summarizes the dispute, and then he reminds them of his instruction to love each other, but then he explains it all through this lens of faith. He says, knowing you're free to enjoy meat and wine and every day is the same is a matter of faith, but not a matter of saving faith. He's not talking about this is how you are saved. He's talking about this is how you live. That's something else. See, Paul is describing a type of faith which persists after salvation. You see, faith is not simply the assurance that initially connects us with the grace of God, but faith is the means by which we stay close to the truth and beauty and mercy and love and faithfulness and goodness and joy and love of God in and through all things. However, contextually, Paul is saying that faith will lead you to lead very different lives from your brothers and sisters, and that's okay. That by faith, you could disagree with your sister, and that's okay. You shouldn't judge her because both of you arrived there by faith. You could disagree with your brother and have both arrived to that conclusion by faith. It's okay. You sort of hear like Paul is just going, hey, 
you guys are so wiling out in Rome. Just, it's okay. You can disagree and still be a family, which is really good news because I don't know any families that don't disagree. This is really good news. Paul is saying that faith will lead us to have differences from our brothers from sisters. And if that faith and freedom then causes a brother or sister to struggle, we will actually restrain that freedom and say, actually, just because I can doesn't mean I should. Just because I have liberty or freedom to exercise, just because I've arrived to this by faith doesn't mean I should do or take this action or behave in this particular way because it ultimately hurts or harms my brother and sister. Again, not because it makes them uncomfortable, but Paul is talking about someone who is drawn to sin or disbelieve or disassociate from God. See, he's saying that even the way you express your faith requires faith. So just because we've done the work doesn't mean that faith now we leave at the bedside of our conversion. We just leave within that process. We even in the way that we apply our faith have to use faith. Christianity then is not simply believing in Jesus for salvation in life to come, but rather Christianity is also about believing Jesus in this life. It's not just about looking to the future and having hope. That's not just faith, but faith is looking at tomorrow. It's looking at my calendar and saying, Lord Jesus, please show up. Help me. I need faith. I think we all know this experientially, but it's helpful to sort of pull it apart. Or as the famous writer who wrote Narnia and other things, right? C.S. Lewis famously put it, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That faith is not merely what we believe about Jesus for the age to come, but even in this age, how we make sense of the world that we're living in. It's about learning to trust the Lord in every moment, every season, every dispute, every decision that we make. Stated differently, faith is about believing that Jesus died for your sins, but it's also about believing that he is alive and living for your joy. See, I think this is really critical. Many of us perhaps grew up with a faith or even now are exploring faith and believe that ultimately becoming a Christian is just about like a one-time moment where we go, all right, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and one day I'll be with him forever. And sometimes we belittle the gospel by simplifying it just so. And in fact, perhaps in a more challenging sense, Many of us want Jesus to be our Savior, but we don't really like when he wants to be our Lord. We want him to save us and forgive us for our brokenness and our sin, and we want to make sure we get to heaven. But right now, could I just do whatever I want? Can I be Lord? See, so this living faith and this saving faith have a relationship with one another. An understanding that Jesus is not just one who saves you for the age to come, but saves you right now in your parenting and when you have that report due, and when you're not sure what job you should have next, right? How how wonderful that he doesn't just want to save you in the age to come or for heaven, but he wants to transform you right here and right now so that you might look more and more like him. I think that's really good news. That sounds like a really good friend. See, that's what the nature of faith is. But in order to live this faith, we need to contend with, I think, these things that we've been hinting out, these obstacles of faith these obstacles that we face nearly every single day, whether perhaps we realize it or not. See, I think the way that Paul is using faith then in Romans 14 is primarily about this second aspect, about living faith. And as we know, living out our faith is really, really challenging. Daily, we're faced with all kinds of things that just go, don't, don't believe, don't trust, just do it. Just do what you think. You do you, right? 
That's what Paul then explains next, that this sort of, these obstacles start creeping up. Look at verse 23. But whoever, he says, has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not done from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Essentially, he's saying that there are ways of living which do not come from faith. And remember, he's talking about, uh, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have saving faith. See, living faith is impossible without saving faith. This is why many of us get frustrated if we've never contended with our own sinfulness or like the the cosmic needs that we have. Trying to apply something like the Sermon on the Mount, the way of Jesus and his ethics, his character, is really challenging. So trying to make Jesus your Lord without first making him your Savior is actually impossible. He demands that we see him as both. See, if you grew up in a religious context, you love him as your Savior and you don't want him as your Lord. If you grew up in a more secular context, you're cool with the teachings of Jesus. He can be my Lord and give me some direction in life, but I don't really need a Savior. And Jesus never actually leaves us that option. He says, I'm both. I'm both. I'm the one who died for your sins, and I am the living Lord who shepherds you even in the valley of the shadow of death. You'll feel no evil. Why? Because I'm with you. Right? He is the God who saves us in the age to come and the one who walks with us in this age. This is what Paul is really getting at. So you can't build your life around a God with whom you have not trusted for your ultimate salvation. In fact, whatever or whoever you trust for your salvation, that's naturally what you build your life around. Because I think many of us even hear this word faith and you go, some people have faith and some don't. We all have faith. We all are building our lives around some ultimate love, some ultimate reality, some ultimate truth. Even if it's that there is no ultimate love and is no ultimate truth, then we build our lives around that. If it's any kind of life that we live with thoughtfulness and decision-making, whatever it might be, and Martin Luther put it this way, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. So whether you're part of a church or not, we are all people of faith. We are all people who learn to put our trust in something. And the question is, is your faith sufficient for the obstacles that you'll face? That when we contend with this real life, I think as Paul is talking about building unity and community here, what's that look like? Notice Paul says, whoever has doubts. Now there are many things that prevent us from faith, and he's sort of contending with one of them here. However, I don't think it means what we often think that it means. See, the word doubt here in verse 23 is the exact same word that's translated condemned and judgment in verse 22. It's the Greek word krino. Essentially, what Paul is getting at is that if you have determined after prayerful consideration that something is not good for your soul, but do it anyway, that's sin. That's sin. So he's not talking about someone doubting, disbelieving that God exists or disbelieving in God's goodness. He's talking about functioning in a particular way without faith being the driving factor. See, even a good thing, he says, is spoiled if we don't act with faith. That that should put us on notice. Anything you do, if we don't do it with faith, ultimately could be a betrayal of the goodness and mercy and grace of Jesus, right? We'll calm our nerves in a minute, but I think it's good to wrestle with that a bit. It becomes sin because something other than God and his goodness is our driving or our motivating factor or behavior or our decision. This, I think, is really helpful. If you didn't grow up in the church and all of a sudden you see a lot of politicians doing crazy things and they're going, and I'm a Christian, you know you got to hold that intention. You know you got to go, that doesn't add up. That seems like maybe you're claiming the name of something, but actually faith is not the thing that's guiding your decision making. You can't claim the name of Jesus and discard people as if they are not image bearers, right? Those things do not add up no matter what you say afterwards. 
Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. I think there are a few common things then that we face that Scripture even highlights that cause us to live without faith. Three obstacles, if you will. So we'll take some time to walk through these. Perhaps one of the clearest ones is disobedience. Is that disobedience is an obstacle to sin. But perhaps we we think of it more as the the fruit of not having faith. But the way that the Scriptures teach of it is even the thing that, that prevents us from living with faith. Anytime we disobey God, essentially what we're saying is, I don't trust you. Or as some theologians have put it, that the root of every sin is a breaking of the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. So if righteous living or faith is aligning our thoughts, our deeds, our disposition, our words with the truth and beauty of God, then every sin actually is aligning us with the character of someone or something other than God. See, when we seek to control people, let's think about that. We seek to control our children control our boss through sort of manipulative, passive emails that we have perfected through the years, right? All of those sorts of things. Essentially, what we are saying is, I'm kind of God. I'm pulling the levers. I am the one who is going to control the situation because left to anyone else, they're going to mess it up and it's not going to be for my good. So control is disobedience that leads us to not, and to rather to disbelieve in God. When we lie to someone or perfectly curate our social media presence, which is really very clearly detached from reality, because we know you. We know who you are. We know what it is. We're in real space and real time with you. Isn't the beauty of community you can't just post something and get away with it? Like someone's going to go, yo, I saw, that wasn't the full story, (laughs) you know? I know that wasn't the best day ever. I mean, you don't have to tell everybody everything, but that wasn't true. In other words, what are we doing in that moment? We're saying my reputation is God. I want everybody to view me in a particular way. In fact, I think about this all the time. You know, you want to know one of the most embarrassing sins in my life? I am so much more vain than I really care to ever admit. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, <sighs> this is so stupid. But I think it's important that you know, like, this is really a disbelief in God. Okay, I hear you. You know, but looking at myself in the mirror is not just to make sure that things don't have, you know, too many wrinkles or something, or that they match. It's sort of like, that dude's got it together, right? That dude is really working it today. People are probably going to ask him questions about where he shops. Thanks be to God, right? That, that, <laughs> I know it's funny, but Lord, forgive me, right? My, my son, bless his heart, one of the things he does when he plays soccer is he watches his shadow instead of watching the ball. That's the sins of the father getting passed down, Right? Instead of actually playing the game, making eye contact, passing it, knowing where the goal is, he's like, that shadow looks fit. That shadow looks on point. And I know what's going through his head because I put it there, right? What's that? That the way I'm perceived is God and everything that I do in this day is going to back that up. You see, we don't get to decide if we're people of faith. We are people of faith. Even when we're sinning, we're putting our, place, our faith somewhere else. See, I think this also happens with me and perhaps many of us with our money. When we allow money to control our joy, our decision-making, and our calendars, everything is making sure that we make the right and enough and more money. What are we saying? Money's God. Money is the thing that's going to tell me what to do. How do I maximize the up and to the right? See, in each of these cases, we're not living with faith in God. We're placing our faith in something else, and that's disobedience. It's taking us away from faith. But disobedience ultimately is coming from a deeper place, and I think it's coming from fear. And if there is any direct corollary in the Scriptures, or opposite, rather, to faith, it's fear. 
Fear is perhaps the closest thing that we have to faith's opposite. And one of my seminary professors back in the day, Douglas Groteis, put it best when he said to the class, fear is looking into the future and not seeing God. Fear is looking into tomorrow and not seeing him show up. Fear is looking into the next season of life. It's looking to our kids going to high school or college or whatever season of life and saying God's not there and not present and I've got to figure it out. It's seeing our circumstances only getting worse. It's thinking everything depends on us. That's fear. Fear is a faith then in the natural world and in the wisdom of this world. Fear is a faith in myself that it is up to me. It's the belief that God does not or will not intervene in my marriage or in your health or in your relationships or in your kid's school journey or in the injustice that you have faced or that your neighbor faces or in your depression. It's believing that everything will carry out exactly as it is. There is no way to change it. This is perhaps why many New Testament writers took this word and I think, I think even translating it in the English is so helpful for us. That's saying that we shouldn't fear man, but ultimately, fear future with, without God, but ultimately we should fear God. Like in Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, this might sound odd to us if we've not read a scripture like that, or perhaps it's odd to us and we've read those kinds of scriptures our entire life. Fearing the Lord is another way, though, of saying that he's the one who's in control of your life. He's the one who's in control of your future, your well-being, and your joy. And for human beings, that is kind of frightening. Putting my entire life in the hand of another, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, to fear him is to give him all of my whole self. See, with earthly fear, it tells us that life is all about us. It's about what we do. It's about what we want. It's about what we make of it. Faith or holy fear surrenders and trusts and cultivates a vision of the future where God is present and he is victorious. One of the ways that we know that we are maturing in faith is our vision or our Christian imagination, if you will, about the future constantly has the grace and power and mercy of Jesus. It constantly has the hope of his resurrection, right? I know a lot of the anxiety that I often have about the future. Jesus is not even a feature in that story. The way that he has provided for my family, there are ways that the Lord has shown up every single one of my 40 years. And I go, is he going to show up in 41? I don't know. And he's like, do you need another? Like, what, what is it about that? Do you need another year of trust, another season, another moment, right? Are you with me? That constantly I'm doubting the things that I see his tracker. It's perfect. It's perfect. But fear constantly creeps in. See, through fear, there's this obstacle to faith. Sometimes we overcorrect then when we're dealing with fear and we go, okay, then I just need to be certain about everything. That overcorrection that really is a lot of religious. A lot of our religious tutelage has told us to be really certain when we're really terrified. And so we don't deal with our fear. We just keep acting like we've got it together. And I think that's the third obstacle of fear. So the first is our disobedience, the second is fear, and the third obstacle, rather, to faith is certainty, which may seem odd to be certain as an obstacle to fear. It's a tricky obstacle. Rabbi Jonathan uh, Sachs put it this way, faith does not mean certainty. It means courage to live with uncertainty. It does not mean having the answers. It means having the courage to ask the questions and not let go of God as he does not let go of us. 
Many of us likely grew up in religious contexts where it was really cute for kids to ask questions, but you remember that first question that you asked that all of a sudden it was like dangerous now, right? Around that junior high to high school, college age, you had to stop asking the questions. That was cute. Now you need to fall in line. You just need to memorize and recite and go with it. You need to be certain, right? To this day, it's been instructive for many of us in our church family to learn about the beauty of changing our minds, right? This is fantastic. Can you imagine if we were comfortable changing our minds about something and didn't fear that we would be oppressed and judged and shamed because we changed our mind about something? You know, like be humans who learn and grow. But there is this religious context and cultivation of fear that children can ask questions as long as they're cute and timely, right? And not like in places where we don't want them to interrupt our really rigid and <laughs> stoic kind of context. But what's really curious, when we take these, these sorts of habits to the New Testament, Jesus not only was around people who were asking him questions all the time, but he was even asking questions. He was constantly asking people questions. Perhaps a question is less about, I don't know anything about this, than it is drawing near to people in curiosity. Right? Sometimes we ask a question because we want to learn. Sometimes we want to ask a question because we want to draw somebody out. Sometimes we want to ask a question out of love. Sometimes we want to ask a question out of intellect. Questions should be one of the things that Christians are the best at in the world, and yet we are some of the worst. Because religion and oppression and this sort of shame culture that we can have within Christianity has taught us that we just need to be certain that's what faith is. But Jesus actually demonstrate something very, very different. And I think what Paul is calling us to here in Romans is to live as people who have faith. The reason we have faith uh, in Jesus at all is actually because of his faith and the faithfulness that he demonstrated. And so ultimately what I think we need to understand here about the character of Jesus is that Jesus never turned away a curious seeker, but he turned away a lot of people who didn't have any questions. He turned away a lot of people who acted like they had it together. You know, like all the people who had answers, they walked away sad. But the people who kept asking questions go, why are you treating me like, why are you loving me? Why are you showing up? Why are you healing me? These were the people that continued to draw near and Jesus continued to draw to himself. I hope that we see that faith is about giving the Lord control of our spiritual imaginations. It's allowing him to curate what it looks like for us to perceive the future, what it looks like to see ourselves. It's allowing the Lord to help you see a future of possibility which human reason finds impossible, of resurrection when perhaps we only see death. It's allowing God to be your peace when life seems disordered and broken. It's allowing the word to shape your habits even when you still have questions and don't have all the information. See, faith leads us to obey when sin tempts us to fear and to just be certain. And this living, this way, it sort of begins to shape us into a kind of people of faith, a community of faith. It becomes generative, in other words, that the way I live begins to shape you and the way that you live begins to shape me as more and more faith continues to take hold of us. And that's the character of faith. The character of faith is shaped in us because each one of us Rather, each one of these obstacles prevents us from living in faith. And, and the thing I think that we need to admit today is disobedience has caused me to not live with faith, right? That all of these obstacles, this certainty, this fear have all rendered, rendered me without faith and without trust. See, all of these obstacles have prevented us from living the way that we should. And yet the beauty of our Lord is he meets us in the middle of those obstacles, 
He comes to you in your fear. He comes to you in your certainty. He comes to you in your disobedience. He is not the God who stays far off and says, well, as soon as you get over that obstacle and start living with faith, then I will draw near to you. This teaches us perhaps the most valuable lesson of faith, that faith is about the object, not the subject. That faith is as strong as that in which we place our faith. So you might say, I don't have a lot of faith. Jesus called it a mustard seed, and he said, you're good. That's enough. A mustard seed placed in the right thing is all you need. A little bit placed in the Lord is all you need. That faith is as only as strong as that in which we place our faith. And God's faithfulness, church, is really worthy of your trust. His faithfulness is worthy of your faith because his faithfulness always outlasts our faithlessness. See, the reason that we have faith in Jesus at all is because he had faith in our Heavenly Father. He lived a life of faith just as we were invited to or are invited to here in Romans. In his faithfulness, we find the character of faith. Theologian Michael Reeves uh, sees in Jesus' act of faith that he uh, represents his new humanity, our new human family, and preserved in his vicarious obedience for us. What's that mean? Well, through the faithfulness of Jesus, who endured all of these obstacles, who faced the temptation of disobedience, who faced fear, who faced the temptation of certainty. He now journeys through this life with faith, with us, thereby making a life of faith possible. In other words, like everything, we look to Jesus, who is what? The author of what? Our faith. He is the author of our faith. See, faith keeps us connected to God, but only because Jesus connected with God, us with God in the first place and keeps us connected with God. So our faith, then, is not in our ability to do better tomorrow. Can I get an amen? It's not like, all right, now we got it. I just needed the reminder, little weekly tweak from the sermon. Here we go. Now I got it. No more disobedience. No more fear, right? No more certainty. No, no, no. The good news of the gospel is that certainty is going to show up tomorrow. Fear is going to show up tomorrow. Disobedience is going to show up tomorrow, but so will the resurrected Lord. So will the resurrected Lord. He'll be with you too, so that when you face those things, you can look to him. This is why Hebrews says, look to him who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We should not be looking at the obstacles of our faith. We should be looking at the author of our faith. See, the longer that we stay connected with him, the more we even, uh, as we say, we can even test this faith the more we realize how cogent, how strong, how stable, how faithful he actually is. He says, test me in this. See, faith is generative. That was true of the church in Rome. Paul wanted to encourage them in that from the very outset of his letter. In Romans chapter 1, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. Is anything more encouraging than watching your sister take a step of faith and seeing the Lord be faithful? That's amazing. Seeing your brother take the Lord at his word, step into a risky and courageous moment, make a decision to move against the current of this age and to see the Lord respond in faithfulness? Yes and amen. There are stories we get to tell at this church about God's faithfulness simply because we stick around long enough to see his faithfulness work out that we would never have told otherwise. It's his faithfulness. This is what Paul's doing. He's like, yo, I've heard what's going on there. It's wild. You guys are trusting Jesus. You're kind of acting a fool over here. So I need your attention over here. Be more faithful over here. But I'm so encouraged and I'm so proud of you, right? 
it's always this sort of duality of, yes, you are being faithful, but in that faithfulness, would you apply that? See, his, he's been faithful here. He's going to be faithful over here too. He's been faithful in your salvation. He's going to help you figure out if you can eat meat or not, right? He rose from the dead. He's going to help you figure out which days you should observe and which ones you should not. He loves you and cared for you and, cared for you and created you. He's going to meet you in your desire for marriage. He's going to meet you in your desire for family. He's going to meet you in your, your lostness about work. He's going to be there. He's going to be faithful to you. He's going to be faithful to me. See, saving faith has produced something in Rome that has produced this living faith that helps them to overcome and face these obstacles of faith because they're being shaped with this character of faith. This is all a mark of the faithfulness of Jesus. That means when we disobey, when we haven't been faithful, that Jesus will remain faithful. He loves us. He shows us his mercy and forgiveness, and his faithfulness will grow us in faith. When we fear, when fear rather overwhelms us, when we're not faithful, Jesus will remain faithful. He will meet you in the valley of the shadow of the thing that you despise, of the thing that you fear. He meets us in our fear. He heals us of our wounds and of our shame, and he tells us that we don't have to control everything. He heals us in the midst of our fear, and that healing begins to increase our faith. When certainty deceives us and puffs us up, when we're not being faithful, Jesus will remain faithful. He'll reveal truth to us. He'll show us our, our limitations. He'll welcome our curiosity afresh, and his lack of judgment will soften your heart, and we'll learn even more to trust him with our uncertainty. See, in all these obstacles, what is the Lord doing? He's going to turn them into teachers. He's going to turn them into things that actually make us more like him. Is this not what he's done with the cross? The thing that we thought was the obstacle to the story of Jesus becomes our absolute hope in the story of Jesus. The thing that his first followers thought, this is the end of the story, he's like, no, nah, this is the beginning. This is where I'm going to die, and I'm going to conquer every obstacle by putting it to open shame on the cross. See, it's learning the truth and beauty and goodness of God and allowing that to shape our spiritual imagination where we learn to faith, face the day with faith in a fresh way, looking to Jesus. We imagine how righteousness will lead to our good. We imagine how his presence and his power in all things will lead to our joy. We imagine how his love that, takes, that makes space for being wrong and growing and asking questions produces faith. The character of faith then is about learning to be in friendship with God, trusting his love and providence over our apparent circumstances, and we get to do this together as a community. You can't do that by yourself. See, when we get, when we get that, we won't actually really make a big deal about who's eating what. When we get that, when we understand that, we won't make sure that they're drinking and they're not and they're celebrating those days and they're not. We, we won't have to judge people who live differently in us. Why? Because we can just trust them. We can have faith. We can live with faith the way that Jesus taught us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it's, it's clear that you are an incredibly faithful God. And yet here we are, even hearing this from your word, left with the temptation to fear tomorrow, to go our own way in disobedience, or to just act certain. All these things take us away from just trusting you. And so whatever you're 
doing, however you're leading my brothers, my sisters, my friends. Father, would you remind us of this truth, the beautiful truth that you are a God who remains faithful, that you are a God who is worthy of our trust, that therefore what we do actually can have faith that will lead to righteousness and to joy and to to, to our good and for your glory. So we ask for your help in this today that we would become a more faithful people. In Jesus' name, amen.